The other thing we're seeing more of as well is perpetrators trying to sabotage uh, their employment. So Mm -hmm. if they sabotage the victim's employment and they lose their job, then they don't have any financial income, so they're reliant on the perpetrator. And also they're then stuck in the house with the perpetrator as well. So we're seeing a lot of threats to actually send explicit photos of an employee to the workplace in an attempt to shame them as well. Right. But we can combat that. If we're aware, if the workplace is aware of those threats, then we, yeah, like we have strategies in place about mm. how, to, how to manage that mm. as such. We see a lot of them making online complaints about the victim. Right. They're pretending to be an unhappy customer mm. or client. So mm. they do that on social media or on the website. And then all of a sudden, you know, this employee is being investigated or, you know, having disciplinary action. And, yeah, so if, if an employer is aware of, of these I suppose, types of abuse as well, mm. that then, yeah, it's, it's not a very difficult plan to be able to, to, to manage this. Welcome to the Medusa's Mike podcast, where we come together to stop sexual violence. My name is Lucretia Rackfield, and I'm so very honoured to have your company today. Medusa was a victim survivor of sexual assault who was blamed, punished, and had her voice taken away. Too many people can still relate to her story, and we want to change that. It's time for Medusa to take back the mic. In this podcast, we'll share the personal stories of victim survivors, hear from experts in sexual violence prevention and response, and talk to the quiet leaders who are creating real change. Sometimes the content may be confronting, and I urge you to seek support when you need it. But overall, I hope each episode helps you to feel more informed and empowered to take action to stop sexual violence in your community. Now, let's hear from today's guest. I'd like to introduce my amazing guest, Tracy Lee Allen. Welcome, Tracy. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Lucretia, for inviting me along today for our chat. It is absolutely our pleasure. I can't wait for the listeners to benefit from your extensive knowledge. Now, for anyone out there who doesn't know about Tracy, I'll give you a little bit of background. She currently helps businesses and organizations to develop domestic violence policies to ensure their staff are supported if they are experiencing domestic violence. Tracy has extensive um, experience in the domestic and family violence sector with government and non-government agencies and her previous roles have even included managing the Queensland Police Service Brisbane Domestic and Family Violence High Risk Team and managing the Women's Domestic Family Violence Court Support Program at two of our magistrates' courts. And she was also the first embedded domestic and family violence specialist with the Queensland Police Service in the South Brisbane Domestic and Family Violence and Vulnerable Persons Unit. So, Tracy, you have a lot of experience working with police and really working at the coalface of domestic and family violence. Can you share with our listeners how you came to start in this very important area of work? Yeah, I feel exhausted just hearing all that. (laughs) (laughs) You've been been a busy woman. You've been busy. (laughs) 
to be honest, um, I kind of sort of fell into domestic and family violence. I was really just offered an opportunity. I've always, I had a career, well, kind of wanted a career change after I had children. And I knew I wanted to help people. And that was, you know, working in the community, wanting to sort of give back. And I was working at a community legal service there. And then um, following that, I had, you know, I was sort of, you know, asked to come along and sort of help out with the domestic and family violence support program for women in the courts. And it sort of grew from there. So, um, and were you originally trained in social work? Is that how you kind of came into no, that? No, my, my background wasn't social work. I was actually oh. a, flight, I was a flight attendant for many years. <laughs> so, yeah, so, but this led into me doing my post-grad in, in domestic and family I violence. I see. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so, so it, was a, it was a big change. Yes. <laughs> oh, look, I think that these days people will have multiple different career changes in a lifetime. I don't think most people aren't going to do the one thing from beginning to end, from the age yes, of 18 true. to 65. It's just not going to happen. You're a very good example of that. You would have some very interesting stories to tell. You've done a lot of work with police yes. in domestic and family violence at the coalface in the courts as well, and seeing the real impacts of what family and domestic violence actually really looks like. And I think I'd like to start there because what I find the more I learn about sexual violence in general is that it doesn't tend to look like how it's shown to us in film or in television or shows that we watch. Sexual violence often looks quite different. And when it comes to domestic violence, it's often not the telltale signs of a a black eye on a woman in a workplace. Can you maybe have a tell our listeners, like what what does it actually show up with more, more often? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, the media campaign that has run over the last 10 years or so has really focused on the physical violence Mm. side of domestic and family violence. And, yes, there is a physical side, but we also see so much more of the non-physical, you know, with the controlling behaviours and the emotional abuse and psychological abuse. And so that is sort of what I think why in society, you know, people aren't recognising it as, as much because they, they kind of need to see something. And these other types of abuse can often be quite subtle as well. So, so what I would say in the, in in the workplace, what someone might identify is that maybe there's a an, an employee who's kind of, you know, withdrawn and, you know, not sort of interacting with other staff and maybe not going to the social events that everyone else is going to. And that could be for the fact that their self-esteem is really low and they're not feeling that they, you know, not feeling social, but also could be that they're, they're not allowed to go. You know, right. they're, they're being yeah. controlled about where they're going. You know, people aren't going to most likely turn up with injuries. And if they do, they're covering those injuries. So you might see someone wearing, you know, long sleeves in summer or a really high turtleneck to cover yeah. bruising around their neck. You know, you might also um, see, have an employee who takes a lot of sick leave, mm. you know, and people are just thinking, you know, there's someone who's, you know, had a big weekend, so takes every Monday off not recognising that that's actually very common for someone who's, you know, in a domestic violence relationship because, you know, there's been a big incident on the weekend and they're just not capable of coming to work on the Monday 
or they have that injury and they're waiting for that to heal, so they're taking time off as well. You know, you know, financial abuse as well. We often, you know, maybe in the workplace you will see that their wages aren't going to that actual employee's bank account. It could be going to their partner's bank account as well. So right. someone controlling their finances in, in that aspect. You might also, you know, see someone sort of arriving late, maybe dishevelled. You know, if you have a work uniform, maybe they haven't got the correct work uniform on because um, we see that perpetrators, you know, often trying to prevent them from coming to work and, and attempting to sabotage their employment. So, you know, they might be trying to hide their uniform and things like that or maybe wow. hide the car keys so that they so they arrive late and then, you know, then they might be, have disciplinary action at work. So, yeah, it's often, yeah, more subtle than then we mm. think, yeah, mm. we think it's going to be very, very obvious, but it, but it's not always mm. obvious. Mm. And can I ask, like, what are the statistics we're looking at roughly with regards to how much domestic violence is occurring in the community? What is the estimate on that? So at the moment, I think the most updated is, you know, one in three women experience physical abuse from a partner or former partner. Uh, one in 17 men experience the physical abuse. With emotional abuse, it's uh, one in four women and one in six men as well. So what we do know is out of those statistics is that two-thirds of them actually work, so they're employed. So really that's a high amount of domestic violence that walks through the front door of most workplaces Mm. every day. Mm. And it's not obviously often not being recognised within the workplace. Yes, definitely. Right. And so... That you talked about the different signs that can be indicators of domestic and family violence occurring. I guess this is where it becomes a little bit tricky because with the work you do is you go into businesses and organisations and you talk to them about how to help and reach out to employees who they feel may be experiencing this distress in the home. But it needs to be done in a very cautious and in a very thoughtful way because when these when these issues aren't managed appropriately it actually can have really dire repercussions for the person who is actually experiencing the violence can't it yeah definitely definitely Mm -hmm. and so I guess what I'm interested in if you and I guess there's a couple of levels here for me too is first of all you have the management and the formal HR structures of an organisation or a business who are hopefully going to be more aware of these types of issues. But then you also have the average employee who's turning up for work, doing their job. And it's really about trying to make sure the whole ecosystem of the business or the organisation is geared and supported and trained and knowledgeable about domestic and family violence so that they can actually identify what's happening and intervene, intercede where and how appropriate. And I guess that becomes quite tricky because people do, we do have this idea that we don't want to assume that something's going, that's happening or we don't want to get involved necessarily or we don't want to cause trouble or even initiating that conversation might feel like quite an awkward thing to do. So mm-hmm. I'm, I guess I'm curious from your perspective, what is it, what do you recommend that if you, if I'm an average employee going into my workplace and I'm, I'm just noticing something that doesn't quite feel right in a colleague's behaviour and, and I feel like maybe there's something going on, maybe 
I just I just keep seeing these patterns of behavior and it's just ringing a, a bell with me. I'm like, yeah, this doesn't feel right. What is what should I do in that situation? What is the best way to reach out to that person? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I'd say that it's really important that people trust that gut feeling. Mm. But that gut feeling is often right. Mm. And really the first time you reach out to somebody, you're highly likely that they're going to say, no, I'm fine. Okay. And it can take multiple attempts and till they feel confident enough to open up to you. So, you know, if, if you do reach out and offer, offer help, don't, you know, sort of, sort of ignore it again if they say, no, I'm fine. Maybe a week later it's a really good time to reach out again as well. And I think people often don't really, you know, start the conversation with that person because they often overthink it. You know, <laughs> they think it's going to be, a, you know, I'm going to say the wrong thing, you know, you know, it's all in my head or anything like that. It's really simple. All we need to say is, you know, in a private place too, you know, somewhere that's nice and quiet, say, you know, are you okay? Can I help? You know, okay. that's, that's really as simple as it is. And if they say, like I said, no, I'm fine, everything's fine, you, can, you just have to let them know, okay, I'm here if you ever need to have a chat. Mm. That means the absolute world to that employee it's that's so empowering just to feel that someone cares because they're probably in a place where they think that you know their self-esteem is really down there they they think that no one cares because they've been told that no one cares Mm. just to know that someone is there to speak to when when they're ready to Mm. and like I said it could take multiple times you know and if that employee does sort of open up to you and say that something has happened something is happening for them at home it's really you know the most important thing I believe is that we do believe what is being said to us and you know don't ignore or dismiss or minimize the the behaviors that's occurring because you know this could be the first time that they've ever spoken about what's happening for them Mm. and Mm. we really can't get that wrong because they may never open up again and also being believed by somebody actually is so empowering and healing for them at the same time. Mm. And it's also important that we don't judge. So whatever they say is going on, you know, we have to really leave judgment in another room. Like it's not our place. We haven't lived their lives, walked in their shoes. We just, we just need to listen to them. Mm. I and think it's, that, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go. I was just thinking about the minimise comment you made. I do feel like there is a tendency sometimes that when someone tells us about something they're experiencing that is difficult for them, it's not that we want them to think it's a lesser thing that's happening to them. It's more that we want them to feel better about it, like that they can get through it. And so we do have this kind of conversation, oh, you know, well, maybe it's because of this or maybe they've done that because of blah, 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 you know, and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a valley some of us fall into, I think, sometimes with all the best intentions. And I, I think it is important that we're aware that we do it. And just to take a beat and go, actually, hang on, before I kind of rush in there to try and make this person feel better, because I think that's a big driver. We want them to feel better. Yes. And we instantly pull that kind of thing out of our toolkit and go, well, I'll say this to help them feel better. When actually that 
you're not saying that's what we should do at all. It's not about helping them to feel better. It's actually just about holding the space for them to be open and be able to trust you. Yes, definitely. Like you really need to use those active listening skills. Mm-hmm. You know, you can just really you use nonverbal communication to, you know, and just sit there and, 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 and listen. Because if we keep giving them answers and solutions, we're not allowing them to make their own decisions as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and they've, that, they've lost that ability to, to make their own decisions. Someone else has been having power and control over them. So really it's time just to just just to sit with them and listen. Um, you can offer them their options. You can say, I can really help link you in with some support, but it's their choice mm. if, they, if they want to do that. And so also maintaining their confidentiality is it's really important as well. It can't become the office gossip mm. either because, again, they will shut down and some people will feel embarrassed and shameful too they it's private they don't want people to know about it Mm. so you know and we can't just rush off and take actions without their consent as well because often in a domestic violence relationship that's what's been happening someone else has been making the decisions taking all the actions they we need to you know empower them to be able to make those decisions and this can take time Mm. You know, it's mm. you know we can't expect that the first time someone discloses you know domestic violence that they're instantly going to you know get on the phone get to a domestic violence service and leave today and live happily ever after that's not the way it happens so it's these you know these things take time and it's often not safe to rush in and make those decisions either mm. I guess because often we may be tempted to try and rescue the person from that situation. But if someone does, if I am that employee and I've approached this person multiple times and at some point they have opened up to me and they've told me about what's going on, what is the next step for me as the employee trying to provide support? I've heard what they've said. I I am concerned for their safety mentally, physically, sexually, emotionally, financially, what is it that I should do as the next step? Okay, So the next step is to let them know that you're there for them and ask them what they need. Hi, Lucretia here. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. I always learn so much from my guests and I hope you do too. After all, the whole reason for this podcast is to empower everyday people like you and me with the information and tools we need to stop sexual violence in our communities. I honestly believe we all have a role to play and we can create real change through our own grassroots actions. If you'd like to support this podcast and help fund its production and promotion so we can reach even more people, you can become a patron. Just click the button on the website or in the Podbean app and put in your details. You can give as much or as little as you like, and I would be so grateful for your support. Now, let's get back to today's guest. You know, a question could be, is it safe for you to go home tonight? That's 
quite an important question and to also ask them if they would like to connect in with some specialist support. So like you said, you might have someone who wants to really save that person, but, you know, your average employee doesn't have those skills. Like, you know, Mm. we really need a domestic violence specialist at this stage to be able to offer, you know, know, a safety plan for that person, uh, a thorough risk assessment and, you know, really specialist counselling as well. So at the workplace can actually be quite a safe place for someone to link in with support, especially if that employee is being tracked. Mm. So, you know, they can use someone else's phone or a landline in an office and in a nice private place. It's a really good opportunity for them to be able to to link in Mm. with, with a domestic violence specialist as well. You know, if their phone's being tracked and all of a sudden they're heading off to another location, the perpetrator may ask where they've been. Mm. You know, so it's it's a, a really, yeah, it can be quite a safe space for them. You know, and it could just be that they just say, you know, I, I just don't know what I want to do now and that's okay. Mm. okay. We can just keep saying, just keep checking in with them and, and being there for when they are ready as mm. such. Mm. The only time that... I say that we can sort of reach that confidentiality is when someone's life is at risk. So there's been threats to life or safety, then then we need to be calling triple zero. So if and that's if if there's been a threat to their life on the perpetrator or somebody else's life, or if they're suicidal as well, then then we can breach that confidentiality. Mm. But it's really important that for any other reason that we actually don't do that. Okay. Okay. And so I guess, so really it's, you know, if they said, oh, I need to get help, then it would really be, well, hopefully there would be some structures already existing in the organisational business that they, you could access. There would have been training in a perfect world, which we know is not, we're not there yet. We're working towards that, Tracy, but we're not yet there. Yes. But, I mean, it could be as simple as you, the person who's trying to support them, getting online and Googling your local DV support services and giving them that phone number or that email address or the live chat details so that they can actually access some support from a specialist who is then geared to connect them with other support services and, and do the safety plan. I think that's the other thing, too, that a lot of people don't realise is that when someone who is experiencing domestic violence decides to leave that period of them leaving is often the most dangerous for them and that is why it's really important that it's handled very carefully and with expert support wherever possible to help ensure the safety of that victim survivor of that domestic and family violence as much as possible yes and yeah so yeah one of the worst things that an employee could say to a victim of domestic and family violence is, uh, will you have to leave? Mm. Because like I said, that's, you know, we've, when they leave, it's their risk is increases significantly. Mm. And so we really, with a domestic and family violence specialist, they create an exit plan. Okay. So we have really good safety strategies about how to do that safe, safely. And also some people don't want to leave that relationship. Mm. So we can't make that decision for them. It needs to be their decision mm. about mm. when when they're ready and also how we go about doing that. Mm. So that's, yeah, that's really important. I guess it, I'm always interested to know what the wrong things are 
what the things are that we should not do in these situations, because I think it's only by learning from the mistakes of others that we avoid those mistakes often. In your experience, what are some of the things that if what are some of the things that people might do that are actually the really the wrong thing to do in those situations if you've got a colleague or a staff member or an employee of yours who you believe is experiencing domestic or family violence what are some of the things that you should definitely not do not do uh well <laughs> what we just spoke about tell them to leave mm-hmm. yes <laughs> that's what we we don't do and tell them what to do like they list off all the things that they need to do right now. Like you, you need to call, you know, speak to police now. You need to do all these things. We, like I said, that really disempowers them. Mm. It needs to be their decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, also asking them for proof of oh. what's happened. I've heard of that as well. <laughs> so you know, like we said, a lot of domestic family violence is can be subtle. Happens behind closed doors, mm. and you know it's we often don't have proof of what's happening. So that's why important if we just believe them, believe what they're telling you is true, we, we don't need proof. Mm, mm. Uh, no one is going to speak out about it. And like the, um, the percentage of false allegations is like between one and 3%. It's just, it's just not realistic in, from my experience, it just rarely mm. happens. Mm. So, and Again, speaking about it without, you know, to others in the workplace without their consent, some employees might say, no, I'm happy for you to let security know. I'm happy for you to let our manager know. But it, And if that's okay, great, Let's then you can share that information with them, but not until they're ready to do mm. so mm. such. Mm. And really also minimising what's happened. So if they you know, disclose a type of abuse and then say, oh, what did you say to provoke that or anything like that? Like, Uh, yeah, which unfortunately still do here. No, we cannot be having conversations like that because, again, that employee will just shut down. They're not going to share anymore. And I think it's always really important to understand that victim survivors, it's never their fault. The the violence that is perpetrated against somebody is never the fault of the victim. And it is a a societal construct that and conditioning we I just need to unravel once and for all this decade, right now. Like just let's just get rid of that attitude. It is never their fault. It is always the fault of the perpetrator. And we need to really stop saying it's the fault of the victim because that just creates so much shame. And as you said, then they don't want to tell anybody because they feel judged and they do blame themselves anyway because that's what they've been yes. told. Yes. They've been told it's yes. their fault, you know. Yes. And I and also the bigger picture is is if a, a woman speaks out and speaks about her the abuse she's been experiencing and she's shamed and belittled and not believed, other women see that as well Mm -hmm. so not only is she not believed then you have it's just a cascading effect then other women don't speak out Mm. about it Mm. you know so yeah so Mm. you know really the workplace can be a safe place for a victim of domestic violence if the workplace knows how to handle that so when part of the strategies that I do is I work with an organization to develop their policies and procedures in the workplace and also then I work with designated staff members on how to respond so it's very general education for all employees but we definitely do a more intensive education 
with designated staff members. I call them domestic and family violence officers as well. Mm. They're, and they're, you know, sort of upskilled on how to have these sensitive conversations. Mm. And also what is also really important is that they know how to implement a workplace safety plan. So a lot of employees probably don't even know that that's something that they could, you know, have as a support option as I've well. Never, I've never heard of one. Tell me, what is that about? Yeah, so so we've sort of developed a list of questions that you could ask the employee and from those answers that can really help how we can increase the safety in the workplace. So it could be like how do they get to and from work every day? So if they drive or if they cap, you know, catch public transport, it's, you know, what we find is that a lot of perpetrators, if they can't locate the victim, so to say they've left the relationship and they're living somewhere where the perpetrator doesn't know they are, perpetrators often know where they work. Mm. So it's a really, for them, they, they will often stalk their victims via the workplace. So we can just have strategies as simple as a car park right in front of the entry, with well-lit CCTV cameras, and someone meets them when they arrive to escort them to and mm. from their vehicle. So when they arrive and when they leave in the afternoon. Same on public transport. If someone just meets them at, at the train station or at the bus mm. stop as well. Things just to make sure that reception aren't passing on information about, you know, their work hours or their, their, their schedule mm. and things like that. Making sure they don't post about their victim on social media. As well, there's yeah, there's a lot of questions that you can ask, like, and you can have safe rooms for the victim in the workplace as well that only has staff access. So if someone does come to the workplace, they've got a safe place that they can retreat mm. to. We can have duress alarms put in. You know, a lot of workplaces has CT CCTV cameras at the moment. That's quite common now, but, but I don't think a lot of workplaces realise that that is such a valuable tool for a victim of DV. Mm. You know, that, that's evidence if they come to the workplace as well. If you have a perpetrator coming to the workplace, you know, being confronting, mm. um, asking to see the employee, that's, we have that all on footage and that could be used to obtain a domestic violence protection order or to even sort of for criminal charges if, if that's a breach mm. of, of an order as well. So, you know... Some workplaces don't allow their, their employees to carry a mobile phone on them. You know, every workplace is different as well. But it might be, you know, important that an employee who is experiencing abuse to have that phone on them so they can call for help. Mm, you know? mm. not, not work isolated either as well. You know, you might have an employee who does outreach. So maybe outreach is not for them at the moment. Mm. Maybe we can just sort of tweak their roster or their routine or, make sure that someone else is always with them. It's, mm. Sometimes it's just not huge things that you can do, but it even the smallest thing will make that employee feel so much more safe, you know, than, and just that someone actually cares as well mm. and they, mm. they don't feel so alone. There is someone that I can call on if, if I need to. Mm. So, yeah, that's, there, there, is, there is many more things, but, but that's just like a, a really good that's starting point. I mean, those things you talk about when you've just said that list to me, I'm thinking to myself, of course, like, of course, that makes perfect sense. But 
until you're in that situation and you have a bit more experience, you probably don't even think about those things aren't the top of mind. Or you might think is I just want to be able to help my staff member or my colleague to be safe while they're going through this period and, and exiting away from this person. And those steps you've just outlined, I'm like, well, yeah, okay. It's not that big a deal to amend someone's roster. It's not that big a deal to have someone just walk out to the car and when they arrive in the morning and walk them back out. It's security in the building that can be easily achieved. And even the bit about reception, I mean, obviously, sometimes people on reception, that's what they're paid to do. You know, someone rings and said, oh, it's such and such there. Oh, no, they'll be back at two. That's such, mm-hmm. a, that's such a, a natural response for someone on reception to say because that's also their job. You know, they're managing calls and letting people know when staff will be available. But if you've got someone who's a perpetrator ringing up and the receptionist said, oh, yeah, they'll be back at two, that perpetrator knows, okay, they'll be back in the building at two, I'll be in the car park at 1.30 waiting for them. So these are really basic, straightforward things, but we don't necessarily think of them unless we're an expert in the field and we have experience. Yes. The other thing we're seeing more of as well is perpetrators trying to sabotage uh, their employment. So Mm -hmm. if they sabotage the victim's employment and they lose their job, then they don't have any financial income, so they're reliant on the perpetrator. And also they're then stuck in the house with the perpetrator as well. So we're seeing a lot of threats to actually, you know, send explicit photos of an employee to the workplace in an attempt to shame them as well. Right. But we can combat that. If we're aware, if the workplace is aware of those threats, then, we yeah, like we have strategies in place about Mm. how to to manage that Mm. as such. We see a lot of them making online complaints about the victim. Right. They're pretending to be an unhappy customer Mm. or client. So Mm. they do that on social media or on the website. And then all of a sudden this employee is being investigated or having disciplinary action. And, yeah, so if if an employer is aware of of these, I suppose, types of abuse as well, Mm. then, then, yeah, it's it's not a very difficult plan to be able to to manage this. And the the workplace could play a massive role in helping that person to feel safe and ultimately feeling confident and protected enough to exit that relationship dynamic. I know that they're supported by the workplace just by their workplace doing things actually that aren't too onerous on business as usual. They're just a couple little extra steps. Because I think part of the challenge too is for a lot of people that I talk to, they recognise that sexual violence and family and domestic violence are huge issues, but they don't always know how they can have an impact. And the steps you're talking about are actually fairly simple. It just requires a bit of knowledge and training to implement. Yeah, definitely. And really, if we can link people in with support at those really early stages as Mm. well, Mm. we can really impact change. You know, I came from working in an environment at the crisis end and, you know, we, there's lots of funding gone into the crisis end, lots of resources, everyone's being burnt out. We're having some success with, yes, we are increasing safety. I'm positive we've saved lives, but we're not affecting change. Mm. So I see that if we can provide an opportunity and we see those early stages of domestic violence 
and we can link in with support earlier, then hopefully they're not going to get to that crisis end. It simply wasn't possible to keep my conversation with Tracy to only one episode. So I've spread it over two. If you have been feeling empowered and informed by what she has shared so far, please come over to episode four and hear what she has to say. She'll be covering issues around perpetrators this time, particularly how we can do early intervention and prevent situations from escalating. Thanks so much for your company today. If you feel more informed or empowered after listening to this podcast, please leave us a review or share this episode with a friend or family member. Medusa's Mic is brought to you by the Stop Sexual Violence Collaboration, an enterprise to bring people together to discuss and facilitate sexual violence prevention and response initiatives. The music for today's podcast is brought to you by Dima Tishko from Tank. The opinions and perspectives offered on Medusa's Mic are solely those of the interviewer and the interviewees. They are our express personal opinions and views. They are not intended or meant to replace any treatment or advice you may be receiving from a licensed professional. If you have specific concerns or a situation in which you require professional, psychological, medical or legal help, you should consult with an appropriately trained and qualified specialist. This episode is copyrighted and should not be reproduced without express permission from SSV Colab and Lucretia Ackfield.